What's up, everyone? I'm your podcast host, Chinat, and you're listening to the Hopkins Hacks podcast. Everyone has a unique journey of exploration at Hopkins, and our podcast puts your favorite faculty, alumni, and students in the hot seat to share their experiences and takeaways. We discuss the four key pillars of college life, including work, relationship, health, and play. In this episode of Hopkins Hacks, we are joined by Neil Bardhan, a Hopkins alumni from class of 2004 with a degree in cognitive science and a PhD in brain and cognitive science. Neil has had a diverse career journey, from research to integrating the arts into science and also science communication. Tune in to hear his insights and experiences, including his time at Hopkins with performing arts, his work in the Netherlands, and how he has maintained connections with his friends. Welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you here. Thank you. For those of our audience out there who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself very briefly? Yeah. So I am Neil Bardhan. I went to Hopkins. Feels like a long time ago now. Graduated in 2004 with a degree in cognitive science. I went on to earn a PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, and followed a research path for some years. And then I moved towards integrating the arts into science and science communication, specifically the performing arts, which does lean on background that I picked up in in high school and in undergrad. But now I'm really interested in how do people get work done? How do they tell their stories about what they do? Why do they do what they do? Which is part of how I got here at this moment. And yeah, I I've had a number of roles over the past couple of years, but I love talking about the discoveries that I've had along the way and the supports I've had, and I just find it. Really interesting to see how people end up where they are. That's awesome, Neil. You mentioned that you were a student here at Hopkins. What was your fondest memory of being a student? Yeah, great question. I was a part of the Barnstormers Theater Group, and I did a lot of technical work there. And one of my fondest memories is my freshman spring. We put on Tommy by the Who in Ariano, and this is several renovations of Ariano ago. <laughs> and it was. Wall-to-wall technology and people, and it was just—it was a spectacle. Wow. Uh, and it was just one of those productions where people were up late, people were up early. We had children in the cast. There was a rock band on stage. We knew that it was never going to be matched again in terms of intensity, and it was just such a fun ensemble to be a part of. That's awesome. What was your role in that ensemble? Yeah, I forgot to mention that. So I was a sound technician. Uh, oh, wow. There was uh, two of us in the sound booth, and we each controlled a number of channels. The other guy, Tori, was lead engineer. He was a, a grad student in electrical engineering at the time, and we just had so much fun. And it was such a massive project to undertake. Wow, was that your first time being a sound technician, or did you come in with some background? Yeah, it was. That's a great point. That was my entree to that, and it was something that I was definitely interested in, and that honestly shaped a lot of my theatrical and also professional life afterwards. Was having that experience. That's super cool. I guess moving on to that, the next question that I had for you was, I'm wondering, did you actually ever envision that you would have a future in consulting? Because I know that you mentioned that. And what were your thoughts when you were applying to grad school? Did you ever consider other options? Yeah, great question. So, short answer is no. What happened was, I'll rewind back to when I was applying to Hopkins, right? Sure. When I was in high school, and I thought I was going to go into Either clinical work or research in genetics. So I was like, oh, I'll apply to be bio major, focus mm-hmm. in genetics, go pre med, see where that takes me. 
And along the way, I realized that wasn't where my passion was. It clicked with some of my interests, but part of what happened was I took pre-college courses at Hopkins between my junior and senior year of high school. And I learned that there was something called linguistics and something called cognitive science. And I thought, this is really neat. This is approaching language. I like words. I like the puzzles and logic of it all. But I'm interested in a scientific approach and how can we look at human behavior that way. And so by the time I was a freshman entering, I had already changed my major once from biology as a prospective student to cognitive science as a entering student. And I thought I would have a research career in that. And in, in many ways I did, but I wasn't quite sure what that entailed. And so once I was finishing my PhD and looking at where to go next, I thought, oh, I'll keep doing this. Don't know what other technical skills I have or where I would fit. I had a very particular set of trainings. Um, and so I took a postdoc in research and loved a lot of what I got to do there, uh, but also thought there's more to the world out there. There's more to me out there as well. I want to connect with other people who are talking about their work. Mm -hmm. I thought maybe I'm not in the best frame myself to do my own original research, I wanted to help other people talk about theirs. And so, yeah, along the way, I just kept saying, I think this is the next thing. I think this is the next thing. But that led me to open a lot of other doors when I was transitioning out of an academic career into one that is a mix of consulting and nonprofit work. I see. That's awesome. Like, it's very opportunistic of you to go and explore these different paths. I know that one of the places that you ended up briefly was Netherlands. Can oh, yes. Yeah. Share a bit more about that kind of experience and what were the differences that you observed between Netherlands and the U.S.? How much time do we have for this exactly? <laughs> Four hours? No, I had applied to postdocs around the U.S. and then also had one application in the Netherlands. And that was the best research fit. For me. I liked everybody that I met there during my interview process. It was also very practically a three-year-long contract as opposed to a one- or two-year-long contract, and it had the possibility of renewing beyond those three years. I said, why not, why not give it a go? See what it's like. I hadn't studied abroad in college, so this was felt like a chance at that to get out of the northeastern U.S. Fair enough. And when I was moving, I thought, maybe I'm there for a year. Maybe I'm there for those three years and I come home. Maybe I'm there for 10 years the rest of my life. I won't know unless I give it a shot. And at the time, I didn't have a... I didn't own a home. I didn't have a spouse. I didn't have a dog or a plant that I liked. I just thought, I can just pack up and go and see what it's like. And so I found a great number of cultural differences, public transportation and biking <laughs> to be one of them, food, just like expectations around what it means to be productive or be in society. And I loved living in Europe. I'll say that much. I absolutely traveled as much as I could and got to know the town that I lived in a great deal, any of the people that I worked with. But at some point I knew this isn't home. This isn't where I'm going to be later in life. I'm not going to build more of a life here beyond a couple years of time. And so when that contract was up, I said, okay, this has been a great experiment. We were talking earlier before we were recording about failure in various yes. forms. And, and this is one of those times where I thought, this isn't a failure. This is just... I went as far as I could go, and I'm reevaluating where I am. It's time for me to move back closer to my parents, back to my network of people I grew up with, people I went to school with, and see what opportunities could come out that way. And so that was 2013. I moved to Philadelphia, where I had a great number of people to catch up with and see what they were doing and see where I could go. And that made the right sense at the time. I'm glad I did that. That's awesome. So kind of rewinding back to your Hopkins experience, I'm just curious to understand, because you've 
done many different roles uh, over the past couple of years. What courses do you think had the most impact, and at which stage of your life do you think it had the most impact? You mean what impact did they have later on, ten years yeah, down the road yeah, or yeah. so? Oh, that's very interesting. I loved all my cognitive science classes. <laughs> I can't, uh, can't deny that. There was something, like I was saying earlier, about the logic of language and the puzzling out of it that has served me well in all sorts of other scenarios as well, whether it's in true personal storytelling, like I work in now, or thinking about how you lay out a spreadsheet for a social media campaign, right? These All these skills connect with each other, even though I wasn't exactly trained in spreadsheets. <laughs> Hopkins, nor was I trained in social media because that phrase didn't exist at the time for one thing. I was able to carry over and say I learned the following ideas along the way and I can abstract those to some of the concrete things that I have to do now. Does that make sense? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Was, is there a specific course that stands out to you? There's a lot of in, in the formal linguistics world. You're going to ask me to try to remember names of courses <laughs> 18 years ago. Let's see, intro to phonology. What else was there? Formal methods one language, which is a very vague title now that I say that out loud, but all of them got me thinking about language as a system mm -hmm. and that it's not just this miasma of concepts and, and blobby sounds, but that there's some some systems and processes to it. And so that has, that served me well. Yeah, I think that the formal methods class is still around. So. That tracks, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I guess when we think about like college life and success in college, another component of it is really relationships. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier that you were part of the Barnstormers community. Can you share a bit more about what are some of the meaningful relationships that you managed to build throughout your college journey? Sure. It's funny because I was texting with some Barnstormer friends this morning oh, wow. on, on my way here. I learned so much from that group about project management for one thing, and recognizing oh. what different people bring to the table, right? Mm. So even if you have different majors, you may have over, overlapping technical skills, right? On stage or behind the scenes. But as well, you need to have different skills <laughs> at the table. And again, whether it's majors or not, the producer has a different role than the director has a different role than the actor has a different role than the cellist. And seeing what people are capable of, particularly in a project, we'll say like the Barnstormer shows, where it's not for credit. It's not demanded for you to advance in your career. It was an extracurricular. And we got to see each other shine in those ways. And we, I Zoom once a week with five Barnstormer friends. Wow, uh, yep. We started it in March 2020. Give recent history some credit. But it started as a way for just a couple of us to catch up and talk about, oh, what do you have planned in the next couple of weeks as we face this? But it's been a really lovely way to think about where we all are personally and professionally. We met up in Alaska this summer, wow. actually. It was my friend Emily's birthday, and she has some extended family in Alaska. She spent some time there, and she said, look, this is a lovely part of my life. My friends from college and other East Coast work friends don't necessarily get to see that. I think it would be really fun to, to get everybody there. And so I flew to Alaska 4th of July weekend and hung out with my college theater friends, which sounds preposterous in some ways, but was really great in others. And again, it had us at some points explicitly saying to each other, how cool is it that our friendships are 18, 20 plus years old? I know. That's... Right? And so I've been able through discussing what's going on at work, home and family things, talking to these friends and thinking they've really seen me grow up, not necessarily in an 11 to 18 year old way, but in an 18 to 40 year old way. Just thinking, 
it's really beautiful and quite heartwarming. For me, at least, and I presume for my friends as well, to be able to say, you've seen so much of me over the years, you get me because you helped me grow up. Yeah. Uh, and so now when we take a look at people raising kids or buying houses and making big moves themselves, we're able to say, hey, this feels like the, a thing that's core you, or this doesn't quite feel like it tracks, let's check in on that. It's really paid off for me. And yeah, I, I wouldn't be where I am without those Barnstormers friends, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. But then in, in addition to the Barnstormers, mm -hmm. would you say that you've managed to build such strong relationships with other people as part of your community, such as your dorm mates or classmates or the people that you live with? Yeah, I think it, it spans all of those. I texted one of my freshman suite mates this morning to say, oh, just walk past Building D, <laughs> hope you're doing well. And college is such an interesting time where it's really intense and also elastic, right? You have all this free time that you can do what you want to. You have a lot of things you can be doing. Yes, uh, but how do you true. prioritize it? Not saying I prioritize things the best I could, but I optimized for other components, let's say. And yeah, built a number of relationships that I just think how lucky I am to have met these people. I'll throw in a story here. So I live in Philadelphia, as I mentioned, and last Friday night, I wanted to go to an art gallery opening in my neighborhood. My neighborhood is not known for the arts. There's one gallery among mostly residential. And I walked in and first of all, I thought it was gonna be a, a very quiet <laughs> affair, <laughs> but it was packed. Congratulations oh, wow. to them. And the first person I saw was my friend Flora, who I met in French class freshman fall. No way. Had, I hadn't seen her in four years. I knew she was in Philly. We, we were lightly in touch a bit. We just hadn't gotten organized about catching up. And she doesn't live in the neighborhood, but it felt so magical. I was like, oh. I know, the serendipity. Serendipity, exactly. We both felt compelled to be there for different reasons. And then we had a chance to sit down and catch up and talk about what we've done the past couple of years and talk about the people we knew 20 years ago. I got to see her partner for the first time in a while. It was just a really wonderful kind of panoramic view, time, if that makes sense, of, again, here's somebody who your freshman French class, you don't assume that you're going to see these people 20 plus years down the road and then cook up professional projects with them necessarily. Yeah. I was taking French because I needed to take French. I don't know where anybody else from that class is, let's be clear. <laughs> but Flora and I had that connection early on as, oh, you're interesting, you're cool, and here we are. It's awesome. I'm just curious to understand though, because this was all pre-social media. Like, I can't imagine, like, how would you even go about knowing people or, like, meeting people if you don't have Snapchat or Instagram and whatnot? Like, how did it work back then? It was, excuse another, the, that word again, serendipity, right? It was just walking across campus, you'd run into people, you figured out who you wanted to make plans with ahead of time. We had computers, <laughs> let's not forget that. <laughs> there was AOL Instant Messenger, which probably is after your, your time in some ways, or before your time, I should say. We could keep in touch with each other, but it required a bit more commitment and planning. And at the time, some people had cell phones and some did not. I didn't have a cell phone until my junior year. Wow. So imagine a life walking across yeah, campus. No cell phone. No cell phone. <laughs> You're untethered in some ways, other than to, oh, I think I'm supposed to be so and so, meet so and so at three o'clock. And maybe they're going to be there, and maybe they're not. It's harder to back out of that. And you couldn't text and say, got a bail, sorry. You just <laughs> went. Or you just no showed. But more often than not, you went. And I don't know, things felt a little more intentional in some yeah. ways, right? Once you were at a friend's house for the evening, you weren't 
really getting texts about where other people were. I'll be here for the evening, or I'll meet up with you at 10.30, because your evening activity is over, but we're going to go do something else, and then you just have to plan differently. Wow. Yeah, because... I can only imagine how different that would be because right now these days texting after oh I'm late gonna come late half an hour because I'm like on the bus or something or I need to finish this little assignment. But then like in your days, if I don't show up for the first fifteen minutes, you'd think that I'd be no show and you'd leave. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that's bad. time. Time was different <laughs> in some ways. That's crazy. As building relationships, in addition to like personal relationships, friends, whatnot, a huge part of that is also building potentially professional relationships. Do you think that you were able to cultivate any kind of mentorship relationships during your time at college and how that helped pan out during your career? Yeah, on a couple levels, for sure. I'll go <laughs> top down, as it were. One is with faculty. I did research in two labs, one on home and campus in the cognitive science department, one over on the medical campus. And I wasn't doing my own original research necessarily, but I was involved in larger projects and working closely with faculty who were quite invested in me. And so when it came time for me to apply for grad school, they were the ones who advised me and leveraged their knowledge base and said, oh, here's who you should talk to. Oh, here's some ideas for you. And then they wrote me the letters, right? And then the letters of recommendation, that is. And so I can look back on Dana Boatman, who, uh, faculty at the hospital and the neurology department and uh, Bill Baedeker who is in the cognitive science department as just very generous people who cared about seeing this undergrad go on in the field. I showed a, a, a deep interest in the sound of language. They could see that was <laughs> a path that I was taking and I think it not everybody was doing that. People, some people took the major just to get a degree and then figure out what to do afterwards but I was working my way in by sophomore year basically. Next level down is some grad students, actually. Cognitive science, uh, certainly when I was there, and maybe this is still the case, was a, a pretty small department by a lot of measures. And so I got to know a lot of the grad students because they were, sometimes, they were a TA for one course for me, but then a student alongside me in another course. Oh, wow. And so there would be where I was like, oh, I'm taking two classes with you and taking one class from you. Again, I got to know them and got to see what are they researching how does that how is that interesting to me or how is that not something that i want to necessarily do and one specifically i'll call out matt goldrick was a phd student 2001-2002 era he's faculty now at northwestern linguistics department and when i was applying to grad school i applied to work directly with him he continues to do work that i find fascinating it was just a really spectacular guy to work with certainly as a 19 year old but even once i was further on i thought oh matt's really wonderful and kind of fabulous mentor. So I appreciate a lot of the um, kind of guidance and stewardship from, from that set. And then the last set, and I don't know if this is how you were trying to analyze it, but this is what you got anyways, China, is fellow students. I knew coming in, and honestly, I can, this is wild that I can tell you this, but part of my application essay for Hopkins was about networking and relationship building with oh, wow. incredibly smart, interesting people. And I knew that the students that I would be among would be going off to do interesting things with their lives, whether or not it was related to what I was doing. So I thought, why not be around a bunch of yeah. smart folks? And that's turned into all sorts of things. That's turned into professional opportunities for me now. An email exchange last week and this morning with somebody I went to Hopkins with about a project that she's working on that she wanted some input from me on. So yeah, it, it's paid off way more even than I, I thought it would. 
That's awesome. I like how you mentioned that these fellow students, you were able to connect and network and be part of your application. Because right now I'm applying to grad school. And that's exactly the same thing I'm doing. But what's incredible these days is that with social media and like LinkedIn, for example, I'm actually able to look specifically for current alumni and students in those yeah. programs yeah. and connect them in advance so that I can yeah. include specific names as part of that application. It was different 19 years ago, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> I bet it would be different back then. Super cool. Um, so yeah, I guess in addition to work as well as relationships, another important component of college success and personal success in general is health. So I just wonder, you mentioned earlier that it was important for you at that time to prioritize your time and figure out what you do. How would you describe your Hopkins journey in terms of your mental health experience? Was there ever a period that you felt scared or uncertain? Was there a period where you felt overwhelmed? Yeah, this is the first time I've talked publicly about this, I think, <laughs> which is the end of my fall semester junior year. I realized I needed some help of some kind. I felt like I was behind in all my classes. I just didn't know where to begin. And I ended up getting help from the counseling center for the first time. I didn't really know what that entailed. I hadn't gone to therapy before, but I met one-on-one -on -one with a therapist for the rest of the school year and that continued through senior year as well and for many years after as well and it was very important for me to learn that there were spaces like that, that i could go to somebody and say here's what i'm facing in classes here's what's going on with me personally and my family and here's a little bit about why i think this is the way it is with me based on something that happened to me five ten years ago i think i didn't know what therapy would hold i thought it was going to be more like academic counseling of skills but I got a lot out of it of um, just as an outlet to process yeah. what I've experienced or what I was going through and I give them a lot of credit for getting me through the remainder of my time. That's awesome. I agree. I think that therapy is a really cathartic process and personally here as part of this podcast what we're really looking at is really helping our audience understand that going out and reaching out for and finding help and prioritizing your mental health is super important to be something that people should feel bad about. So you mentioned prioritization, like how did you figure out what you do at Hopkins? Like how did you plan your time? I think I didn't always have a great bead on medium term needs. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever really found a good strategy. I know that I have a midterm in two weeks. Let <laughs> me we start prepping for that. <laughs> I was more on the, oh, this is due tomorrow. Time to start working on it angle and going back again to our conversation about failure and being able to take stock. Looking back, I can say, wow, I all but failed a lot of times by having to stay up until three o'clock in the morning working on a problem set or cramming and then not feeling comfortable once I was taking the exam in class. So I do wish often that I'd taken a better look at what study skills I came in with and how I was developing those based on the course material. Very different than high school for so many reasons, but I thought I could use the exact same processes and that wasn't the case. And then I reevaluated again when I went to grad school, again in professional settings. But I think this is another thing that now from where I sit, outside looking in and getting insights into things like the Life Design Lab, I just think the resources available and openly discussed by students and staff and faculty here is really fantastic at the time. I was a student, I didn't try to take advantage of it as much as I could. I thought I was gonna be okay. And I struggled at times for sure, but I learned also not like what was acceptable exactly, but what was necessary sometimes. So sometimes you can ask for an extension 
on something, you could say, this is where I'm at. I've done six of the problems that I'm working on number five, and it's really stopping <laughs> me. Just get another day on it, and many faculty are okay with that. I've had a friend who is a faculty member now elsewhere in the world. I don't know them through Hopkins, and they have a policy where students can turn in an assignment anytime the student wants to. Wow. If the student wants to do all their assignments for the course, December 17th. <laughs> okay. But then they're all going to be graded on December 18th. And so they have this flexible policy, and the student has to find out, do I want to follow the kind of guideposts provided of this is due September 20th, this is due October 1st, or do they want to structure it a little bit differently because they say, I'm, I'm going to be working on these all together on a long weekend, anything like that. So I think there's also been some changes on the faculty side about what makes sense for everybody over the years. And I don't have any answers, and I don't... <laughs> teach undergrads at the moment, but I am always really grateful to the people who offered me flexibility or some counsel by saying, hey, you're working on this particular problem. Why don't you think about it this way? Or yeah, take another two days, but be sure to have it in by Friday because I'm actually grading it over the Wednesday night. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a practicality to it all as well. I agree. And being a teaching assistant here, I'm currently a teaching assistant for a computer science innovation and entrepreneurship mm. class. And I totally agree with the fact that communicating is just the clearest thing. Because sometimes yeah. if a student doesn't have an assignment, you don't know if there's something wrong. But just stating your case usually goes along. Yeah, it's just being honest about where you are and what you're trying to work on. Yeah. So true. So another component of health, in addition to mental health, is also physical health. How did you manage your diet, exercise, and sleep here? How was the food here when you were out? Yeah, the food was up and down, that's for sure. I'm a little on the history, but I feel like the athletic center as it is today opened up maybe my sophomore year mm. while I was here. And I would go to the gym with friends. I played some intramural basketball. I also think a lot about how much I walked when I was in college versus now. I walked everywhere. How else was I going to get somewhere? So true. And so I probably walked a couple hours a day. And this morning I walked 20 minutes between arriving uh, on campus and meeting you. And I thought, 20 minute walk? My goodness, this is <laughs> a rare treat for me. When it just used to be what I had to do to go anywhere. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that you had some late nights working on homework. Like, how was your sleep schedule? Oh, sloppy. <laughs> Very sloppy. I think about sophomore spring, I probably spent a lot of late nights on Thursday nights. Would turn in my problem set Friday morning by 11, go back to bed for three hours, and then go to class. It was, it was things like that were really unhealthy, but they made perfect sense to me at the time. And, and there's also something really beautiful, going back to what I was saying about you have all this free time about being able to set my own boundaries and say, look, in some ways for me at that time, being awake, say midnight to three, it was very quiet around the dorm. I could listen to music on headphones and just focus on what I was doing. And nobody was emailing me in general, but yeah, the point stands, right? It was easier to concentrate at that time. Now, maybe I probably should have done that three days beforehand or found other ways to set those boundaries for myself. But it was that exploration of saying, how can I get this done and then recover as I need to? Fair enough. And so was the Fresh Food Cafe open at that time? or I have no idea what that is, no. Okay, so where was the dining hall? What was the dining hall? So, what was it called? Terrace Court Cafe was the name of the freshman. Terrace Court Cafe? Uh, just below buildings A and B. Uh, oh. I don't know if that's okay. That's still below B. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So that was there. Sophomore year, I would eat dinner mostly in Woolman. Oh. Yeah, Woolman Dining Hall. And uh, Woolman had a dining hall? 
Does it not now? <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Yeah. Woolman had a dining hall and then also kind of like a convenience store attached to it as well that took, you could do, it was called meal equivs, meal equivalencies of the dinner you got, let's say, seven bucks worth of food or something like that, or you could put cash on top of it. That was popular. There was also, this is something I, I was joking about last week with a friend, Megabytes? I don't know if that, is that still a thing? Yeah. What is Megabytes? Megabytes, okay. Megabytes have a, basically a Taco Bell Express and a Pizza Hut Express and some other conveniences, and it's in, it was in AMR 2. And so for freshmen or anybody walking through that side of campus, it was a great 10-minute meal. You could grab cereal and a muffin on your way to class, or Taco Bell for dinner on your way between doing homework and an evening extracurricular. Wait, where was that located? Was that behind AMR 2? Within AMR 2, I want to say. Within AMR 2? Okay, after this, I have to go walk over <laughs> and see what's happened there. What? I'm so, so fascinated now. Yeah, no, definitely. I'm astonished, because, yeah... AMR2 did not have any food options when I was there, and oh I God. definitely... Megabytes was where it was at. Yeah, wow. it was a, a place to get a quesadilla, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. And so, wait, was Woolman the only place where there's a convenience store, or was there another convenience no, store? No, so Megabytes was the convenience store, the Woolman, and then maybe that was it. Yeah. Levering had oh, a, a dining hall that was... Uh, Breakfast, one. lunch, and my thing with levering was I always ended up there like 20 minutes after lunch stopped being served. Oh, yeah. like, oh, I can just stop by levering. Like, oh, no, I can't stop by levering. Oh. So I always wanted them to change their hours, but instead I graduated, so that worked out. But levering was a great place when I was an upperclassman to meet my other friends who lived off campus and were, like, that was a central gathering point. Often you could easily all meet up at the same table around 12 and come and go, and that worked, that worked great. A lot of fun memories there. Yeah, I find that these kind of food places are best places to really meet a lot of people in serendipity. Because yeah. I'm personally, although I know a lot of my peers use social media and I like to use social media as well, I find that the best ex the kind of co new connections that I make are usually those serendipitous ones. And so I make an intentional effort to go to these dining halls and I find a group of people or a cluster of people that I Dude, no. yeah. And I'd sit down and I'd be like, can I sit with you guys, please? Yeah. And then usually they'd look up and be like, okay. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then you, you, you just open up these yeah. like, great conversations. So I guess the final kind of pillar that when we think about college life and college success is uh, play, right? Like, how do you enjoy yourself? So you mentioned that you were part of Barnstormers, but mm -hmm. I think you were also part of Witness and yeah. World Culture. You've done well. your homework. I'm impressed and a little <laughs> scared as, as, as how you found this. <laughs> No, I, uh, I barely performed with throat culture, actually. Okay. I did more, like, writing and idea generating. Other people from that era may have differing memories. And then Witness, I was involved with in a number of ways. I wrote one play, I acted in one or two, was on their board for a while. And Witness, I still think of a lot as such a great... Yeah, experimental play space for the art. I, I wasn't a writing major, I was not a writing minor. I just, I needed an outlet like that and was fascinated by what my friends and peers were generating, again, in a space where your grade doesn't depend on this, nobody's really looking at your witness output for my linguistics grad school program, that wasn't important, but it was a way to generate art, produce it, and engage in, in different ways with something honestly brand new. And that was the sort of thing that didn't exist in my high school experience, for sure. And so that felt incredibly... And now, when I'm engaging with the definitely the performing arts as an adult, as a professional, I really prize those experiences. 
as well. And so when I've been involved with uh, like comedy in Philly, yeah. again, it has this vibe of we're doing this because we love making this and we just want to see what happens. I'm curious to know, did you get into improv when you were in college or was that something after? No, that was way after. That was way after. Yeah, I remember going to buttered niblet shows as a student and loving them. And then I saw a couple improv shows when I was like in grad school. And then some years later, my older brother took a, an improv course designed for scientists. He took a, a, a workshop. And this is at the time that I was leaving my academic world and looking at science communication and how do I fit myself in next. And he said, take a class in improv. He's like, I think it'll be really interesting for you. Personally, I think you're going to get a lot about where you're headed professionally. And he's also, you know, he's known me my whole life. We love comedy. We enjoyed making theater as high school students. This is something different and special. And we, he doesn't perform improv these days. I perform a lot less than I did, say, four or five years ago. But we go back to those core principles and shows in, in, in ways that people created, not just improv, but like, comedy in general that doesn't even necessarily fit a mold or a label yeah. and saying how amazing is it that people collaborate and put something together and what do we learn from that um and so he and i both in our professional lives can look to a number of shows that we've seen groups that we've uh, been a part of and say oh there's something that worked there that now i want to transport to this conference that i'm presenting at or this boardroom <laughs> meeting that i'm in and it's a different vocabulary and framework and it may work perfectly well, and it may need a little relabeling or rejiggering, but at the very least, it's a way of thinking about how people create together. And yeah, there was it was exactly what I needed at the right time. And I've met a lot of wonderful friends through improv and comedy as well. And like my Barnstormer friends, right? We look back and we say, what we were doing five, six years ago, we were putting on these shows in basements and old funeral parlors, right? Like, and it was just because it was fun and an interesting way to connect and make something new. And then whatever else we got out of it was fantastic. It still is. But yeah, we built so many relationships and, and also made some art along the way. Was there a stand-up comedy club at that time? Yeah. I've done a little stand-up, not as much as I've done improv or uh, those, those unlabelable things. So I'm just curious to know that, like, what is advice or recommendation you give to somebody who's just starting out? The comedy, comedy world? Yeah. I would say sample a bit of everything that other people are putting out there and not just who has a Netflix special, but find people on YouTube, find podcasts that you don't have any clue why it's funny, but you just know that it is. And then go see live stuff because that's so often where there's inspiration and it doesn't have to be a blockbuster. It can just be fun for you. And that's great too. How do you have a formula for generating content or any advice about how you can potentially overcome the initial internal kind of fear? Barrier? Yeah, it's just starting with things that you know about yourself authentically. True experiences, right? When I've done stand-up and some sketch type things, and it, it's based in my own true stories and my own beliefs. That's easy enough to pin down. And then it's what makes that funny or how can I make this absolutely absurd? Or what would it be like if I'd made a different choice? Because this is something that I came back to a lot in early in improv, which is life is funny, right? Mm. Even if it's not intended to be comedy, you can see something as you're walking across the quad and crack up at it because it's just wild how that happened. And the other side is even when things are very serious, there's humor. Yeah, right. So I've seen countless improv scenes that are sad and touching and heartwarming and all those things, but also 
there's a layer of humor there because isn't it wild that sometimes that people have to say certain things to each other about their family or their relationship. So yeah, it's just start with what's true and then play from there. That's awesome. And I guess also part of play is also traveling. Did, mm. When you were here at Hopkins, did you have a lot of traveling experiences with your peers? Did you spring breaks, road trips, anything like that? Funny, I don't think we took a ton of road trips. We have an occasional one for a very particular purpose. I remember my sophomore, sophomore fall, that's how that worked out. Our friend Elise, she'd had her car on campus for a couple weeks and had to leave it take it back to her parents' house in central Pennsylvania. And my good friend Chris and I road tripped and we caravaned up at least drove up first so I her parents for a couple hours and then we followed up to, to pick her up. And that was that took a full day somehow. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it quite necessitated that in terms of mileage. But we had a blast just chatting and playing music in the car and then you know, Elise's parents for a minute and got some snacks and we're back on the road and somehow that full Saturday right there. <laughs> yeah, uh we took a good number of trips to D.C. for the day. That was always a treat. I loved the Hirshhorn Museum, part of the Smithsonian. And yeah, there was always there's always some place next to go, but usually it took a, a bit of planning. And something that, that I alluded to earlier was I didn't do study abroad, and it's partly because I felt like I was busy enough on campus. But how can I hit pause on all these things that are happening and go to Australia for even three months, let alone longer, when I'm here to be engaged? That's super cool. So I guess transitioning a bit more to your experiences post Hopkins, do you think you continue to travel a lot these days? These days, yeah. I've had a, a great run this summer and fall with my wife. We went to Alaska, as I mentioned, wow, with some friends. Alaska. We went to Maine for a wedding. We went to Miami for a conference for her. Been to went to three weddings in October. So that, that took up <laughs> some interesting time. My mom lives in the town where I grew up. And so go up and see her and in some ways there's just a, a different freedom now i have less homework to do <laughs> <laughs> and i guess everything's opening up now things are opening up yeah i have access to disposable income now that i didn't when i was 19 that i can go uh, off somewhere but i also was really fortunate i mentioned this earlier when i lived in the netherlands i traveled constantly like i in 2012 i think i visited like 16 different countries and it's because i could, first of all, I lived on the Dutch-German border, so I could bike five miles and be in a different country to gro grocery shop. But I could also pay 30 euro and be on a plane to Portugal for the weekend, and then I was back by Monday at nine for work. The scale of things there is just different. But I, I needed that as an outlet for exploring myself and seeing where did I want to end up, where did I want to be comfortable, what did it take for that, and what made all those countries so different than being in the northeastern U.S.? Lots of things is the answer, but it, it just gave me that freedom. I'm curious to understand, because you really look into linguistics and understanding the way language works. Was there anything interesting or unique that you observed across the different cultures, and potentially whether that be the language, cuisine, or just mannerism that you think is something perhaps common throughout humanity that you oh. observed, or yeah. anything that you'd like to share? One, one easy thing wise is Knowing a couple words and phrases will get you really far. I spent uh, about four days in the Republic of Georgia visiting some American friends. And Georgian is a, a language most Americans don't know. It uses a, a script that is unique to Georgian, effectively. And I don't read Georgian, but I studied up but on basic thank you, please, a couple numbers. And I think I showed up there with a, a capability beyond what 
many American tourists would have. Oh, wow. And could I do a lot of transactions there? Absolutely not. But could I order myself lunch? Yes. That was very That's important awesome. to me. Um, awesome. And uh, people ask me, like, oh, how's your Dutch? How's your German? And I say, oh, I speak just enough Dutch to get by. Let's atrophy a great deal. And my German, I say, my German was pub and train German. I know my directions. I know how to use a train ticket. I know how to order a, a beer and a sandwich. But don't ask me to do interesting verbs about taxes or something like that. And on the, you mentioned cuisine. Yeah, everybody's got interesting food in some way. There's a history there, and there's uh, even if the food isn't what you and I might think of as delicious, there's a reason that that's what people eat there. And it's certainly a mix of history and culture and sometimes oppression and colonialism, but also on a simple environmental level, is what grows there. Do they, can they fish easily or is it all tubers? And so I really got to sample a great many things when I was in Europe and explore that, yeah. I totally agree with the fact, just learning enough of the language so that you can get by, because I remember when I was in high school, I was taking this Spanish course and just for whatever reason, I just couldn't learn a language. And I was like, man, this is like so boring. I couldn't get to do it. But then my family went on a road trip to Camino de Santiago. And so it's this pilgrimage walk that you do in like, Spain. And within that like, month, I learned even so, much more yeah. Spanish. Yeah. And what that kind of made me realize is that just like, living and breathing things that yeah. ultimately will define themselves. And so it's important that you're actually practicing that. Within the oh, for sure. Yeah. When, when I was in grad school, I was going to speak at a conference in France. And again, this is basically pre-social media, <laughs> pre-smartphones. I'd emailed the owner of this bed and breakfast out, outside this university in southern France where I was going to go. And I took three years of French in middle school, high school, a year at Hopkins. And my French was adequate. It was very adequate, we'll say. And I hadn't had a lot of chances to practice it between freshman year and when I went over for this conference. So I'd emailed the person and set up a room. And I showed up there and I met her and first said something in French along the line. Like, oh, I have a room. Do you mind if I speak English with you? And her response was effectively, you speak French just fine. We can do it in <laughs> French. And that's when it clicked wow. for me. Oh, yeah. I have four years of French training, not just so that I can read a textbook at some points and take some exams, but because I knew at some point I was going to be in France and want to speak French to people who spoke French natively. And it didn't wow her, I'm sure, with my abilities. And I couldn't live there full time right now, certainly. But it, that's what I needed in that moment to say, hey, people use their languages to live their lives. And if you're going to learn a bit of it, go ahead and make use of it. And do you think that this general understanding of all these different languages played a role in your day-to-day -day work these days? To an extent, yeah. Now, when I'm helping people tell their true personal stories about why they do what they do or life-changing experience that they've had, I like to remind people, met people from all walks of life all, all over the world. I say, look, at the end of the day, everybody just wants to go to bed happy, fed, and loved. There's, obviously there's many more layers to it, but in some ways, life isn't much more than that. And if you remember anybody's particular life story or you're trying to process, oh, why did you do that? Why did you make the choices? People are doing the best they can, right? Some people grow up in very unfortunate circumstances and they just do what they can. It's not because they're trying to be evil. It's not because they're trying to do some long-term strategy on how to take over the world. They're doing the best they can. They're just trying to go to bed happy, fed, loved. And that's what comes home for me a lot of the time. 
Happy, fed, and love. Pretty good. Nice phrase. So is there like a framework that you use when you help people structure and shape their stories? Yes and no. In some ways, it's a Joseph Campbell's like hero's journey. In other ways, it's acting away from the thousands of stories that I've heard pulled on stages and in various other settings and podcasts over the years. I like to remind people that like we're all storytellers already. Even if you are taking the stage for the very first time and you've never been in front of a microphone before, you've told a story. You may not have thought of it as that, but that's what we do. And that that's what I come back to a lot of the time. Feeling apprehensive? All right, pretend I'm a friend of yours over coffee. What happened that day? Go for it. It's not going to be necessarily the most stage-ready, polished version, yeah. but the core of it you're going to probably tell me in a pretty linear fashion. Yeah. And if you don't, all right, why did you deviate? Why did you have to go re rewind halfway through to explain who Marsha was? Or why did you start to tell me the ending too soon? All right, work from there. So having worked with so many people, what do you think are the main things that are holding people back from telling these kind of stories? A lack of confidence and a lack of platform, basically. A lot of people think, oh, I'm not a, I'm not a good storyteller, because they don't see themselves as that. Again, I'm saying everybody is one. That's uh, what humans do. And then by lack of platform, sometimes people don't know who wants to hear their story. Sometimes they think they're everybody knows their story already. Or it's like, oh, everybody has the same story. Maybe everybody in your subfield of your subprofession has that basic story. But I don't work there. You tell me how you got to do it what you do. And so reminding people that seven billion people out there, <laughs> a lot of them don't know your story or have no concept of what it might be like. Just try it. Just try it. And if the storyteller is somebody who's trying to figure out the meaning of it, okay, that, or we say sometimes, look, you don't know the, you don't know why you went through this yet because it happened a month ago. Process that. We'll talk about it later on. But you know your story up until that point. How did you get to that? And what does it mean that you ended up in this situation at all, let alone with the outcome? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, people know their lives. I thought about this preparing for this interview. You generously sent me the question beforehand. And I looked it over and I thought, I could write this out, but I don't think I need to study it because no. I know my story. I, I, I yeah. know who matters to me. I know maybe some of it's fuzzy in details now because it's old, but <laughs> I know the broad strokes of what got me where. And I think most people do. I think most people remember or can reconstruct it with a bit of encouragement. And so when you help these different clients, what are their usual backgrounds? Are they scientists mostly, technical people? It ranges, it really ranges. So I work now at First Person Arts, which is a nonprofit based in Philadelphia, and we believe that everyone has a story to tell. And we help people tell their stories. So I've worked with people who went to prison when they were a teenager and were convicted of violent crimes, and those stories have value. And I've worked with people who are Nurses. I worked with a lot of nurses through some really wonderful partnerships over the past couple of years. And nurses have the best stories, is what we say. Everybody's stories are the best stories, but nurses have some <laughs> incredible stories that don't always have a platform for all sorts of complicated reasons. And at the core of every conversation, every time I meet somebody, what I'm reminding myself is I personally love hearing other people's stories, and if I do, other people probably do as well. And I know my own story very well, but I don't know all these other stories very well yet. And if somebody in my inbox or on my phone, there's a reason for that. And maybe it's a very clear transactional reason, maybe it's a deeper, more spiritual one, but okay, how did you come to be talking to me today? 
is this about a challenge that you face in your personal life that influenced your professional life? Is this about a professional experience you had that now you're trying to bring as a, a teaching moment to your colleagues? Let's explore whatever this is. And it's fun, right? Like, you, I think you get this a bit yourself. <laughs> you yeah. can see that you're in that other people are really interesting. I totally. And you and I have literally walked the same paths foot-wise, and yet... I did some of this at a very different time. And so we're able to connect on that level and say, all right, we've both been literally here before on this <laughs> campus, uh, but have had such a different experience because of our families and who, are, who we are and what's available to us. And that's, that becomes true on like this local campus level, but also this global level as well. To the extent that you can share, given that you've heard so many stories at the first person arts, is there a compelling story that really stands out to you that you, you don't mind sharing with us? Yeah, this is a story I come back to all the time. The storyteller is a guy named Dan Carnavale. He lives in Pittsburgh. And I met Dan through the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, which helps exonerate people who are factually innocent of the crime that they've been convicted. And I met Dan by phone in summer 2020, preparing for a speaking engagement that he had. And Dan's story is, in short, he was convicted of a crime in 2006. He was convicted of a triple homicide and arson in Pittsburgh, where he had lived once on time. He went to prison, and the whole time he maintained his innocence. He said, I didn't do this. Did not do this. But he, they'd taken him to trial, they convicted him, they, had, they claimed evidence. Dan didn't do the crime. There was in fact no crime. It was an accidental fire that killed people, unfortunately. But the system, and this is my own interjection here, the system needed to pin the blame on somebody and they were able to cook up some ways to point the fingers at this guy, Dan. But this whole time he's saying, this wasn't me. And he fought and he fought and he went through all sorts of different avenues that he could. And he got connected to the people at Pennsylvania Innocence Project who took on his case. And they said, yeah, we're going to work on this for you. Let's figure out what's available to us. And I should add in here from my understanding, there's Innocence Project all across the country. Many of them have connections to particular law schools and are working at the state level. There's a tremendous number of people in prison who should not be incarcerated because they did not do the crime or because any number of other reasons. But Innocence Project particularly focuses on people who are, they say, factually innocent. This person did not do this. We can show that this was the case. So... Dan was fighting and fighting for 13 years, and he found out that his case was getting dropped, or rather his, his, they were going to consider whether they were going to retry him. I believe that. I'm not a lawyer. He found that out in February, March 2020, and he was released from prison like March 12th, 2020, got to have dinner with his brother, and then COVID shut down basically Pittsburgh and the county that they were in, and so he went from, as he says, went from lockdown to lockdown. Right? He was... Wow. in state prisons, living a very particular life that had some uh, number of unfortunate aspects to it, as many prisons do. And then he was like, now I'm out? But what is there? But by the time I got to know him, he had he'd gotten a full-time job. Uh, awesome. He managed to get a driver's license, which he had expired or he hadn't had access to previously. He'd rekindled a friendship with somebody that turned into a relationship and he just looked at it and he said, I'm lucky to be where I am. And he was upbeat and spoken to him a couple times since and the thing that he pointed at several times was he looks at so many little things that he could have taken for granted. The concrete example is having some ice in a cup of water or in a soda. You can't have that in prison. And so now, when he gets ice in a soda, he had 13, 14 years where that just wasn't a possibility for him, let alone 
all these other things. And it, it's just, it was just such a tremendous story of overcoming very difficult odds and systems to come out on the other side. He was able to, to tell his story to, in his words to a number of people who had gathered to listen. And I think about him all the time because it's such an... One of the first things I said to him was, look, man, I know my experience, you know yours. You've had an extraordinary life. I need to... I'm excited that I get to work with you and help you shape it. And that is... That's the power of this kind of work, right? Is being able to say, how did he end up where he is today? Whew. He had some twists and turns, very unlike my twists and turns. But hearing him process that almost in real time, right? Because I was talking to him just a couple months after he got released and exonerated. I felt tremendously fortunate, and it felt also like a great justice that I could add to the world, right? Just sharing, hey, he's not alone in this. If this happened to him, this happened to other people as well. And we're lucky that we have his story, and I felt very fortunate that I could be part of that, particularly in 2020 when many things felt incredibly challenging to find, find hope. Yeah, what I what I find really inspiring about that story specifically is how Dan continues to have such an optimistic outlook. Yeah, given the injustices that he has personally experienced. Yeah, he uh, was listening to a story he told the other day where he opened with, uh, "My dream is to open a pizza shop." And he's like, "I just love cooking and baking, and I just want to open a pizza shop." And I just thought, "Ah, that's it. That's so pure." <laughs> he's he's looking to change the world in the best way that he can. Just pizza. So when you helped Dan, somebody like Dan, like shape their story, do you help them with the structure, the language? All of it, and depending on what's needed and what's possible in the timeline available, many people have the language around it, but need a little nudge here and there, or a little editing. of This happens often with technical folks, but it happened with Dan and the others as well, where I just say, hey, I don't come from that world. Can you define that for me? Or can you explain a little bit about the shape of that building? Because... Yes, you're mostly telling your story to colleagues, let's say, but I'm not one of them and we'll have some public there. So I can help people with the language that way. The structure is the big thing for a lot of people, right? Memories are messy and people pull from all sorts of things and just being able to put it in a package that, one, makes sense to the teller and two, works for the audience is really important. And I think about this interview, we've covered all sorts of things. This isn't the direct narrative that it could have been. If I wanted to write this out as a chapter of a book, sure, I could do that. But everybody has to piece it together and find a balance often as well. People, Some people want to add a lot of details about things mm. that they don't need all the details for. Sum that up in a sentence or two and then move on because yeah. caricature example, right? But maybe I don't need all the details about that course you took. But I just need to know, did you make a friend in that class? Despite how challenging it was. Yeah? Great. Great. Don't tell me all about the problem sets. <laughs> just say, I had some very hard problem sets. I met a wonderful classmate and now we work together. It's something like that. People, again, I'll come back to it. Everybody's a storyteller, but how you want to tell that story is going to differ based on who you're telling it to, your own personal needs, just kind of like where you're at as well with the content. Yeah. We're all learning about ourselves. So given your current position in your story, where do you see yourself in five years' time? What's the next chapter for your personal story? Yeah, thank you. I am working on writing more about, about myself and my beliefs. This is something that you touched on earlier about how do you start in a comedy and start with what's true. I haven't given myself the freedom in some ways to write some of my stories down or essays about why I believe what I believe and how I got there and I want to do more of that. I'm also curious about, yeah, other ways that people can tell stories. I've been really fortunate in that I've helped people 
prepare for the stage and podcasts and so on. And I think that's going to continue. But I think particularly with where we are culturally and technologically now, if that yeah. makes sense, we're at kind of an inflection point of what other formats are there of storytelling. That's very exciting as well for me. Have you ever tapped around? I know video is a great format, but like VR, AR, people around. Oh, funny. Haven't touched VR, AR. Video... I leave to the video expert. Yeah, my wife and I were talking about it the other day, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to learn how to edit video. Maybe the tiniest bit, but in terms of like full-on production, I said, I don't think I'm going to be a TikTok star. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> That's amazing. And so you, do you see yourself being continued to be a first-person arts or staying in Philadelphia, or what's the plan? Yeah, I'm definitely at first-person arts for a while. I got a lot of great projects going on. I love Philadelphia. I've really built a wonderful network there. And I, I came in with the wonderful network. I'll give a lot of people some credit for that. But it's a town where so many people are passionate about so many different things. Um, and it's big and small all at once. I can walk across town and run into somebody that I know, but I can also meet new people all the time. And I, I came there because the landscape of professional opportunities was so vast. And I've, I sometimes feel, oh, I've been in the arts and I haven't been in higher ed as much as I thought I might, or I haven't gone into the business side of things as much as I thought I might. And yeah, every, everything is growing, so. Super cool. Before we wrap up here, I have a couple of fireside chat questions that okay. I like to ask in my podcast. Yeah. So the way that these questions work is that these are gonna be focused more on your Hopkins experience <laughs> and just answer them like with a phrase or like the first thing that comes to your mind. Got it. If there's one thing that you can go back in time and do differently at Hopkins, what would that be? Take more classes, pass, fail. <laughs> <laughs> what is one advice you'd give to your freshman self? Work on your study skills. What is one undervalued aspect of the Hopkins community? Diversity. What is one habit that you've had that has had the most impact on you? Relationship building. What is one book that you recommend that every student reads? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, okay. The Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. Mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. We'll make sure that we include that in the show notes down below. And finally, what is your favorite spot on campus? My favorite spot on campus? At least when you were here. When I was here, I would say it was in the Smirno Theater at the Matin Center, which is no longer in existence, but that was where so many of my memories got built and skills learned and I look back and I just think so much happened in one room. That's awesome. Thank you so much again. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience and the listeners out there from the Hopkins community before we wrap up here? Yeah, I will throw out maybe two things. One is work on your own stories. Know, know yourself and keep track of things. In my experience working on storytelling and comedy and, and writing and so forth, I'm really fortunate that I have all my emails from college that I can look back at, but I wish I'd written more for myself and I wish I'd journaled more, basically. And I outsourced it to all sorts of other media, but that's one thing that I think a lot of people not necessarily shrug off, but assume is taken care of for them, but it's a really wonderful process. And the other thing is be open to developing those relationships and networks outside of where you think you're going to. Thank you so much again, Neil. It was amazing and superb hearing about your own personal story as a storyteller yourself. Awesome. It was absolutely great having you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate the opportunity. Hey there. I've got one favor to ask you. Share this episode with one person who you know would benefit from it from the Hopkins community. 
If you're on YouTube, show us your love by subscribing and smashing the bell icon below and commenting as well. We can't wait to read your reviews on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Any suggestions for us? Feel free to leave it there. Go hop!